Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. It started with suffrage. In June of 1910, a group of women traveled around the state of Illinois, inspiring support for the right to vote. Helen Todd was among them, a factory inspector who called for the need for laws concerning working conditions, hours, and wages. One night, while staying with a local family, she asked the hired girl, as she was described, what she had liked most about the speeches given the night before. The young woman responded, it was that about the women voting, so everybody would have bread and flowers, too. Helen Todd was electrified by this image and went on to lift up the phrase, bread for all and roses, too. Throughout the 20th century, Lawrence, Massachusetts was known as Immigrant City, with former residents of 51 nations wedged into its seven square miles. Nearly half of them had lived in the United States for fewer than five years. Most of them found work in the mills. The life expectancy for mill workers was less than 40 years. A third of them died of pneumonia from inhaling lint and dust, tuberculosis from close, airless quarters, and workplace accidents within a decade of taking their jobs. What came to be known as the Bread and Roses strike began on January 11, 1912, when the power looms that thundered inside the cotton weaving room of Lawrence's Everett Mill suddenly fell silent. When a mill official demanded to know why the female employees were standing motionless next to their machines, they responded simply, not enough pay. That night, word of the strike swept through the city's squalid tenements. The following morning, a walkout cascaded through neighboring mills. Even above the loom's deafening din, the shouts of strikers could be heard, short pay, all out. By the end of the day, more than 10,000 workers were on strike. Although they lacked a shared language and culture, they were united in a common cause. Local farmers arrived with food donations and soup kitchens, community halls, and ethnic organizations held the strikers together. When news of the women's walkout was published around the country, American laborers took up collections for them and their families. It was a bitter winter, but the mill workers prevailed. On March 14th, the nine-week strike ended when mill owners offered a 15% wage hike and overtime compensation. 15,000 workers gathered on Lawrence Common shouting their agreement to accept the offer. This is American poet James Oppenheim's Bread and Roses.
as we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day. A million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill-offs gray are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. As we come marching, marching, we battle too for men, for they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our days shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing their ancient song for bread. Small art and love and beauty, their trudging spirits knew. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days. The rising of the women means the rising of the race. No more the drudge and idler tend that toil where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories. Bread and roses, bread and roses. According to legend, Xerxes, the king of Persia, a warrior king leading an army of hardened soldiers, once stopped his army for several days to admire a sycamore tree. Beauty is not just something extra, a luxury. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Beauty is essential. On Sunday, February 20th, we celebrated the 92nd birthday of our beloved Harriet Bogage. Two of her children, Dave and Terry, brought a huge spray of flowers to decorate the chancel. And afterwards, Ali Jablonski, one of our affiliated community ministers and a chaplain at Tufts New England Medical Center, sent me a message which she gave permission to share with you today. Thank you, Ali. Hi, Kim. Did you see the flowers from Harriet's family? They were stunning. I checked in with Dave and Terry after the service, asking them if it would be, they would be taking the flowers, and they said they wanted to leave them behind. Queen Cheryl asked if I could bring them to the hospital after worship, stressing that something so beautiful shouldn't end with our service. Kathy, one of our clinical nursing directors at Tufts, had come to the service with her daughter. I asked her if they were allowed on her unit, an adult inpatient psych unit. And Kathy told me their unit was bursting with very sick people. I drove Kathy and the flowers to the hospital. They barely fit in my Mini Cooper, where another one of the chaplains met us with a cart. They brought them up to the unit, and Kathy led a group on beauty and gratitude, inviting patients who wanted flowers to pick which ones they wanted. She and the staff worked to make them custom bouquets kept in a safe plastic cup. 
At the end of her evening shift, Kathy texted me to say that they gave out every single flower and that the patients loved them. I'm wondering if you could pass this on to Harriet, Dave, and Terry. I'd love them to know that their gift kept giving. And at the hospital, the giving went to a population that is so often overlooked and so in need of beauty. The word beauty shares its roots with beatitude, blessed, and good. In 1921, Unitarian theologian Von Ogden Vogt wrote Art and Religion, laying out his thesis that art is a primary and necessary factor in the religious life. In a general way, he said, the great lack of Protestantism is not intellectual nor moral, but artistic, not ethical, but cultural. Art and religion, art and spirituality need each other. Spirituality needs art to be impressive, to get a hearing, to be enjoyable, to assist reverence, to symbolize old truths, to heighten the imagination, to fire resolve. Religion cannot complete its reformation until it has squared its experience not only with the scientist and the moralist, but also with the artist. Every religious leader is called to be more aware of the universal hunger for beauty. My colleague Peter Friedrichs told this story from a spring day at Stonewall, Stonewall Farm in Keene, New Hampshire. Actually, apparently this happens annually at dairy farms throughout northern New England, a very special festival to celebrate the season. At Stonewall Farm, it's called the Dancing of the Ladies. You can get a mental picture of that, and then I'll tell you what it's about. <laughs> Huge crowds gather and stand 10 people deep to witness, get ready for it, the ceremonial release of the milking herd from the barn to the field for the first time after the long winter. Apparently, sprung from the dark confines of the barn, the cows act like children released for recess. Weighing in at close to one ton each, the ladies kick up their heels, prancing and cavorting through the fields. The joy is infectious. In her book, Changing Light, the Eternal Cycle of Night and Day, artist and teacher J. Ruth Gendler writes, beauty breaks us open and connects us to the hearts of others the soul of the world, deepens our connections with the places we live and dream about, the people we love, animals and plants, trees and rivers. Beauty opens the door to creativity and wisdom. In the Kabbalah, the ancient Jewish tradition of a mystical interpretation of the Bible, beauty is where spirit and form meet and the human and divine are in balance. Born in 1856 and raised here in Boston, architect Lewis Sullivan coined the concept, form follows function. It became a guiding principle of 20th century architecture. Sullivan was known as the father of skyscrapers, 
A lot of very ugly and soulless buildings, strip malls, sprawling parking lots, and highways cutting through neighborhoods were built from his idea. And then came his student, Frank Lloyd Wright. Did you know that he was a Unitarian? In 1879, his parents were founding members of the Meeting House in uh, Shorewood Hills, Wisconsin. Frank Lloyd Wright designed the current church building there, completed in 1951. In his book, The Natural House, he writes about form and function coalescing and merging until one is indistinct from the other and in perfect harmony. Form follows function is mere dogma, he wrote, until you realize the higher truth that form and function are one. They are of the same, of each other. Form and function then become one in design and execution, and execution if the nature of materials and method and purpose are all in unison. The German animation and design studio, Kersgesat, conducted a study that concluded that the beauty of a city was just as important to its inhabitants as safety and economic opportunity. Again, beauty is not a luxury. It is a necessity. Naturalist John Muir wrote, everybody needs beauty as well as bread. Places to play in and pray in where nature may heal and cheer and give strength to body and soul alike. This natural beauty hunger, he invented this word and we all know exactly what he means by it. Beauty hunger is made manifest in the little windowsill gardens of the poor, though perhaps only a geranium slip in a plastic cup, as well as in the carefully tended rose the gardens of the rich, the thousands of spacious city parks and botanical gardens, and in our magnificent national parks. Nature's sublime wonderlands, the admiration and joy of the world. I'm thinking of a story I heard about a place called Cabrini Green several blocks of one of the Chicago Housing Authority's most misguided initiatives, row upon row, floor upon floor of the poorest of the poor were packed in to Cabrini Green, which was not green. It was, said reporter Peter Lucart, a tub of economic nitroglycerin balanced on a chopstick of social support. Cabrini Green's most infamous buildings were dismal high-rises known as the Whites, named for their slabs of pale industrial concrete. Useless electric wires hung down from roofs. Every fourth or fifth window was boarded up with plywood. By the early 1990s, it was one of the most dangerous public housing sites in the country, an open battlefield for warring gangs. Bullets flew. Fires burned, and not even the Chicago Police Department, renowned for their toughness, would venture inside. Finally, after way too many deaths, the CHA realized that Cabrini Green was unsustainable. Residents were relocated, or not, and cranes and demo crews rolled in. 
One by one, the whites came down. But as the shabby construction fell into rubble piles of twisted rebar and enormous chunks of concrete, the demolition of the whites revealed something extraordinary. In stark contrast to the grim exterior, the cell-like apartments, the interior, had been painted in vibrant and varied reds, blues, and greens. Springing from the extremities of poverty and violence, a ghost-like message from the former residents was transmitted to the rest of the city. Human beings lived here. It's safe to say that Chicago's better-heeled citizens would have assumed that the people of Cabrini-Green had been too preoccupied with daily survival to focus on anything like beauty. Paul Lukert writes, what the ruins of Cabrini-Green suggest is that a longing for the beautiful is actually a critical part of the human experience. It is necessary to being human. To be aware means to be intrinsically attracted to beautiful things. On the outside of the terrors of poverty, there are soul-numbing buffers against beauty. But when all is torn away, lint in your pocket, no food on the table, nobody left in your life, what in fact remains is the spark of beauty, a little crystal burning with the essence of humanity. Those with nothing, aware of its power, are drawn more urgently to its nascent flame. French Renaissance man Blaise Pascal said, in difficult times, carry something beautiful in your heart. Beloved spiritual companions, the warrior king stopped his army to admire a sycamore tree. The hunger for beauty is universal, not a luxury, but a necessity. May beauty break us open and connect us to the hearts of others and to the soul of the world. Bread for all and roses too. Amen. And now for a benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. May beauty break us open and connect us to the hearts of others and the soul of the world. Bread for all and roses too. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen.
visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.